I'm Scott Michael Shotgun with McLeod Bethel Thompson, and this is the Athlete Purpose Beyond Sport podcast. Hello and welcome to the Athlete Podcast. Thank you for tuning in this week. Um, as we do each and every week, we invite our an ancestor of sport to enter the space and give us wise wisdom and guidance in our conversation this evening. And in light of our amazing and talented guest this week, I could only think of one ancestor that could, we could possibly bring on, and that's Burl Toller Sr., a transcendent human who is the reason why our beautiful guest is here today. Uh, Burl Toller um, went to, despite not playing in high school football, I believe he was born in Memphis. There were, some, there were some vague details, but I believe he was born in Memphis, and despite not playing football in high school, he won a national championship at City College in 1948 went on to play in the 1951 undefeated team for USF. They went on to three Hall of Famers. Unfortunately, even though he was drafted by the Cleveland Browns, he unfortunately had a devastating knee injury in a college all-star game and didn't allow his career, but didn't let that stop him. Went on to make history again. Uh, was a 25, uh, 25 seasons as an NFL referee, including refereeing the 1980 uh, Super Bowl between the Steelers and the Rams. He was the first African-American to officiate a game in the NFL transcendent human being went on to uh and during this time as well was 17 years as an educator in san francisco as at ben franklin uh, elementary uh middle school i believe and um the campus has since been named after him he's been on in, uh, inducted into the bay area uh, sports hall of fame um transcendent amazing career in and out of sports and he's the reason why our guest is here today. So bring please bring us wisdom, Burl Toller Sr. Thank you for being here with us, and thank you for sharing this space. Thanks, Mac. So when Mac and I started this thing, I think there was a part of each of us that really wanted to challenge a little bit uh, the mainstream status quo in sport and the world that revolves around sport. And one of the first people that came to mind for us was our guest today, Cam Toller, who is the grandson of Burl Toller, who Mac just introduced. So today on the Athlete Purpose Beyond Sport podcast, we have Cam Toller. Cam's an architect by trade based in New York, um, but played football at Cal Berkeley for the Golden Bears in his college days. I first met Cam around 2011 in the Bay Area, and since I've always been impressed at his strength and ability to not just blindly follow convention. He does that in all aspects of his life. Uh, He leads a very creative life, and I think you'll see that as we dive into this conversation. So, Cam, welcome to the show. Oh, Cam is muted. Unmute. We'll try that. There we go. Cam, <laughs> Cam. you missed the best part. <laughs> That's all right. We'll edit that yeah. out. It's a great Those were the, the, the five most wisest words you've ever heard, and it's going to be silenced. And no one's going to get that. That's, that's the power of Cam Toller. It's all, it's, it's in the, read between the lines to get on page with Cam Toller. It's, it's like it's like, end scene. It's like in, in Forrest Gump when he gets on stage in front of the Washington Monument and the, mic, and the mic's turned off, right? <laughs> well said, man. Well said. Cam, uh, welcome to the show. No, thanks for having me, man. <laughs> Super excited to be here and um, uh, yeah, and see where this conversation takes us. I know, yeah, sports been a big part of my life. Um, uh, as we've grown up as a kid, and part of my family's like history, and um, it's taught me a lot of lessons. So I'm uh, excited to dive into it. Dive in. We're super excited to have you here. First off, we haven't been talking much about the pandemic, but since you're out in New York. What is the day-to-day like right now for you guys? 
Oh man. Um, uh, so my fiance and I, Megan, we are uh, in our two bedroom apartment here in West Harlem, um, right on Broadway and like 138th Street. So we're kind of yeah, right in the middle of Manhattan. Um, we, yeah, it's funny actually, I wrote a, wrote a letter to my office the other day just to kind of explain the differences um, that we had. And <laughs> I, I worked in, um, I guess still work in Battery Park of our offices. And there's like a nice view of Lady Liberty from there. Uh, I can do short walks to like, short, short lunch walks to good food from shitty food trucks. And, um, and then I work with like a group of, you know, great people. Um, and now I'm like stuck in my bedroom office with like a view of the neighbor Lois who's like, lighting a cigarette and um and then like walking to the kitchen to cook meals and and do all the dishes afterwards so it's it's a it's a different lifestyle but it's doing all right um we get our we get our yoga in in the mornings or in the afternoon sometimes then um i don't know, just spend a lot of quality time to, with each other have a nice slow it's been kind of nice to like slow down the pace a little bit and yeah kind of step back from the the hectic new york hustle I'm finding in this pandemic that like I'm I'm it's it's calming and soothing in some ways. Obviously that they're surrounded by craziness and you need to block that out and understand that people are suffering and 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 there's devastation all across the board, but as you kind of try to insulate your bubble and create a positive space in that bubble that I've been really working on like it's okay to not finish something. And for my personality being a very type A person, I'm like I have a to-do list, I'm going to accomplish that to-do list. And it took me probably like two, two and a half, three weeks into this, into this situation until I was like, you know what, if I don't finish this today, guess what? I have tomorrow. I can, I can wait till tomorrow. It's been a really healthy <laughs> process for me to like pace yourself, enjoy the moment, whatever I get done, that's what you were supposed to get done. And then you can wait for the next, at your next opportunity. I think there's so much of that when anytime you have this sort of shake up in life, it's, it's kind of an opportunity to almost take a third party perspective on, on how it is that you are living. Um, Cause it's different for everybody right now, right? Like mm -hmm. there aren't too many people that are this reclusive on a, a, on a daily habit. Right. And, you know, some people are, but for the most part, like we're used to being a lot more out and about. And so this amount of shakeup, I think it does give that opportunity, just like you're talking about, Mac, to just like take that third party's perspective and kind of examine your life a little bit. And like, what are your processes? Like, what is okay? What's, you know, what, how can you be a little bit more, more patient or kind with yourself or a little bit more motivated or whatever it might be? How can you be a little bit more creative? I think that's, that is like the, it's weird, right? It's weird to say like there's there's a positive side to this, right? When it is a very hard thing economically for a lot of people, so many people. I mean, we're over 30 million people in our country that have lost their jobs to this thing, right? And there's so many people that are really struggling with the health side of uh, of it, and, and you know, people losing loved ones, and you know, and then it, there, there's a lot of darkness to it, but you know it's and it is i think weird to acknowledge that there is kind of a silver lining to it but you know maybe not i don't know maybe it's not weird to acknowledge that but. no there's there's definitely some 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 positives i mean um yeah i mean yeah as in all things there's the, there's the good and the bad and like the the struggle 
and um and yeah so there's like i don't know there's people that get mistreated or like forgotten but then there's also like sometimes that it brings people together <clears throat> and so like every every night out here in new york at seven o'clock um all the neighbors come outside and like start making noise with like I don't know, bells or pots and pans and just giving a thank you to all the um all the healthcare workers that are kind of putting their life on the line day to day and it's kind of meant as a a welcome home for those workers and a thank you just saying hey thanks for for pitching in and helping out um the community the you know the people in need and for like putting yourself uh beneath like the the greater community um so that's always nice to to hear from my window like or when i go outside and, and i've gotten to like meet a couple neighbors from that um and whether it's just like a hello it's like you know sometimes i see people that i've never seen on my block but have probably lived there just as long as I have, you know. Um, so yeah, there's always there's always some sort of silver linings in, in these things. It's almost crazy, like this amount of adversity. It, it almost like you're you're talking about people coming out and banging pots and pans at a certain times to sort of celebrate the the work and the sacrifice of people in front of them. And I like not to overstep, but it does reminisce a little bit for me of like what a sporting environment is right when you have this this crowd and these fans sort of cheering on the 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 work and the the i guess the sacrifice and the dedication that you see in front of you and in a way that sort of that camaraderie sort of galvanizes a community so and you know given the circumstances as you know dark as they are at times there is i think that sort of that that camaraderie and that kinship and that sense of community that maybe we're building back in these in these times in a way yeah yeah and then i think on the same kind of note like we gives the gives us gives, gives an opportunity to like to check in on how we're doing as a society like we see, we see uh, the disproportionate numbers of black and brown people that are you know, dying from this disease and like, hey, how, you know, why, why is that the case? Um, and trying to figure out like, you know, what, what's putting these people at a disadvantage uh, to start with. Um, so I think it's also, yeah, giving us a set of lens to like, to analyze our, ourselves in our society, which, which can be used for good or could be ignored or it could be um, used for evil, but hopefully, yeah, it's used for more good than evil, you know? I think that's a really, like, that's an important part that I'm I'm kind of sh not struggling with, but most focused on at this point is that we, as a society, I think have forgotten some very fundamental things as to how our society works, how community works, how our government works. And I think we're, we're overstepping that bound. And the more that we can come back to, like, what is my role as a citizen in this space and how, who's, who can I inter influence and who can I interact with? And then that can trickle all the way up to like, what truly is the president's role in this situation? What is Congress role in this situation? And how can we as a society have these conversations that like, what is the, what is the goal for all of us? And is it a goal for the most number of people? I mean, we've heard these kind of protests and stuff coming out like reopen now and, and the argument being that they need to support themselves and they need to work and have the business. But then it's also an identity of community that like, well, we're doing this for the greater good of our larger community. And I think have we lost a bit of that, that we don't have 
a, a sense of community in that same way that um, we are kind of sucked into our phones and sucked into our technology that we don't interact with our community around us and have a sense of responsibility to the people around us and who are doing those things and what's the first step in doing that process. I think it's maybe a conversation that we're not having on a local or a national level. Well, I think you bring up something really interesting there, Meg, in that, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of those protests going on. And I, I you know, for one, live in, in rural America. And, you know, we had protests in my hometown that were about businesses being shut down. And there's a little bit of a dialogue um, at times that's, that's very anti-authority on it. Like, you can't take away our rights, you know. Like you can't tell us what to do, that sort of thing. But then there's some legitimate arguments that I've seen that have come out like in our small little town, why is Walmart considered essential when our like local family owned place that sells a lot of similar stuff ordered to shut down, right? Like, and so there are, there is some of that commentary that makes sense, but at the end of the day, like we all still need to be able to feed ourselves and house ourselves. And so it, I, I think that this situation in a greater sense, you know, like Cam saying, like you're saying, it's, it, you know, we all talked about it as an opportunity for us to look inward at our personal lives and what are we doing, but in a, a little bit of a greater sense, it's an opportunity to just like you're saying that to look at, what are we doing as a society right now and how are our systems really set up and what is everybody's roles, right? Like, how does this work? Like, it's kind of interesting that our hospital systems can't sustain themselves financially without elective surgeries, right? Like without these surgeries that are deemed kind of non-essential that our hospital's bottom lines like can't be met. And so there's hospitals in, in the rural parts of the country and the, the, the less affluent parts of the country that, you know, have been kind of teetering the brink of like shutting down for financial reasons during a time of a pandemic. When you think like the demand would be going up, like nurses are being furloughed, you know, providers, like the actual patient providers are being furloughed and, 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 and sent away at, during this time and it, and it it makes me think about things like you know universal health coverage you know it makes me think about things like you know basic income the city of stockton california you know has been running experiments um with this concept of basic income where you pay everybody like a certain amount to kind of meet some very basic needs uh, and then the free market kind of runs its course from there but just to make sure that the people within your community within your society are kind of getting a little bit no matter what no matter what the circumstances right because this pandemic is so out of our control in so many different ways but it doesn't stop the fact that we still need to be able to feed and house ourselves you know and we had the stimulus that happened and in a way i'm really interested in learning from an economic standpoint, when we look back at this in the, in the years to come, this was really our, one of our country's first attempts at sort of a basic income, a very socialist, you know, to put that in quotes, but a socialist type of practice where you, you redistribute wealth to the bottom first. Um, this is the first, one of the first times that, and, and maybe somebody has another example of our country doing this, but I, I don't know of one where 
we just paid our citizens. We just gave our citizens money to meet their basic needs. And I think that's really, really interesting. And I'm really curious to see economically how that pans out when we study this thing in years to come. I think that's, I mean, that's a great question. And I definitely am not qualified to answer that by any stretch of that imagination. But I think looking back at that, it's like a, it's a, it's an experimental. What is the purpose of each little piece and what is, what, what do we want to do as a collective society? And as we dive into like subjects that relates to sports, which I think we're more adept and qualified to answer the question. Um, what is, and, and we can jump off this conversation here, I guess, like what is the purpose of sport? And, and kind of, as we dive into that, we, it, this is a time when we don't have sport and you can see the massive desire for it and the massive, like, I want to, I want to watch this sport. I want to, I want to be entertained. I want to, where's my NBA tonight? Where's my MLB? And, and what is that relationship? What is that fan player relationship like? And has that evolved and has that devolved in what ways is it, is it a fan saying, entertain me, you know, entertain me, keep me entertained. Um, you don't, don't talk about politics or whatever the, the, the manifestations happen in that way. Um, or in the positive side of it, that it is really desired right now, that we want to be entertained by that, that there is a connection to it, that, you know, all the local fans are missing cheering for their local team. Um, and those teams have gone from very local teams to now very national teams. I mean, people in LA are talking about, where's my Barcelona soccer? You know, it's become a very national conversation. So fandom has gone from a very local to very national to a global level. Um, and much less the athletes right now that, you know, myself included, that don't feel like we have a job. Like, what's our purpose? Like, if, if I don't play, you know, this season, what, what's, what, what, how can I contribute to society? And what am I giving to society? So maybe now we can pivot to and discuss more of a sports-oriented approach to, like, what is an athlete's role in, in the pandemic at this moment? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, just jumping off what you were talking about, um, I think for me, like, sports have always been about – uh, teamwork. I've always played. I mean, I guess occasionally I ran track, but even track is still a team sport. You know, you're trying to get points for the team in your individual in your individual events. But um, it's always about teamwork and like camar camaraderie. Um, even from a fan's point of view, it's like you want to have that feel that camaraderie with the with your fellow fans and, and cheering for the same goal. And uh, and yeah, as a player, you want to you know you guys are all sacrificing your your bodies and yourselves to help the, the group as a whole get to a certain goal. Um, and so for me, yes, teamwork and like camaraderie has always been a, a huge part of that. And I think ever since I stopped playing, you know, organized sport in college, um, kind of missed that a little bit, but have uh, sought it out in different areas, whether that's uh, as an architect with my architectural team and, my, and the consultants and the engineers that have to work on a project, um, or whether it's like organizing a group of kids um, for a certain project, but trying to build that sense of team, that sense of team and camaraderie um, is like, oh, it's just good for the, it's just good for the soul. It's like you, you help, hold people accountable, you hold yourself accountable, um, and you know that people have your back in those situations. Um, do you feel like, do you yeah. feel like that was taught to you? by a coach or do you feel like you learned that like kind of innately just by playing like this is the best way to play or do you do you remember and this goes back to your youth probably maybe even more earlier than you remember like do you remember a sp specific incident of a coach being like 
this is how you, you know, work as a team. And then you seeing that be effective and adopting that into your kind of ideology. Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess I feel, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but we'll probably give one that like, I, I know it's happened, but not, you know, it's maybe not the exact real, real. But that's, I mean, uh, that's the evidence in and of itself. Like you've more experienced it than, you know, a specific, so maybe it's less coach oriented and more peer developed that like as peers, you associated working together as the most beneficial way of winning. And, and I think that's my case too. I would say I played soccer at a young age and I love, I have, I always have love for my coach and he was a great coach, but he was not an X's and O's coach. Like that was not his forte. And, 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 you know, he was creating a space for predominantly young Latino underprivileged youth to play soccer in a safe space to keep them away from gangs straight up. Like that was his goal. And I got wrapped into it as one only gringos around that could kick a ball as good as all these young, you know, kids from the neighborhood could, could. So we joined a team and his main goal was to create a space for kids to after school from four to six, a space for them to run around, be active, that was more positive than hanging out in the street with their, their, their friends and getting into the wrong kind of, kind of stuff. And the mm -hmm. way I learned, I never, never heard a coach say like teamwork work together, but it was evident like in the, in the structure of soccer more, more than any other sport. Like I could try to dribble past all these guys, but it's a lot easier to pass it to this guy run forward. And I just pass two other defenders and I can get the ball back. And for right. us to work and score a goal is just, it was worked into the structure of the game that teamwork was necessary. Yeah. Don't you guys remember? I mean, I remember as a kid, like there was, there's this whole concept of being a ball hog, right? Like if you were holding the ball and not passing the ball, like your friends called you a ball hog. So I think in a way, like, isn't that's a little bit of evidence, I think towards there being a lot of peer education that just happens naturally in the sporting environment. I mean, would you guys agree with that? Yeah. You never liked that yeah. kid. The ball hawk was you never yeah. liked the ball hawk, right? You never liked that guy. Like pass the <laughs> ball. Like, like everybody's got everybody's got to touch it, right? Even if the majority of the time that ball hawk, because generally that ball hawk was one of the most talented players because they felt like they could ball hog, yeah. hog the ball. And even if their success rate was relatively high. The times that they hogged the ball and it was evident that they could have passed and succeeded, it was like an it was like a screw you to everybody else on the field. Like it was immediate that the, right. the visceral reaction to yeah. that experiment that that right. experience was like, what the hell are you doing? Like just pass me the ball, I'm wide open. Um, was way could way out far all the times that they dribbled past four people and right. shot and scored. You know that was great. Okay, you know good job. But like the one time he didn't pass it to me, that was when I you know would be frustrated and it would send me off the rail. Yeah, uh, I kind of feel like that uh, deserves the analogy of like you want to go go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. Because uh, yeah, like that that might work. Uh, the ball hawk can, can dominate like a shitty team, but like once you start getting to the playoffs, if you're not passing the ball, you're not going to win the game like that. And um, so like yeah, having to develop the team as a whole rather than just the ball hog is like I don't know, a, a lesson learned from from sure many ball hogs that have a. Uh, have tried that and failed once they got to like some tougher opponents. And that's the, as you level up, right? The, the, the situation changes and you need your opponents. I want to do a quick detour into history. 
uh, a quick soccer yeah. history. So I was doing some research this week as I was procrastinating from writing my thesis. And I delved into some soccer history. And this is not the full history of how soccer or football was developed. But there are some elements of it that I'd like to highlight that kind of highlights the different levels of the, and the different ways that sport is formed and the different purposes that sport is formed for. So soccer or games that are played with your feet and regarding a ball go all the way back to the second, the second and third centuries BC in Japan and China. In China, it was called Koju. I apologize about the pronunciation. I'm probably butchering it. In Japan, it's Kamari. And both of these games were cooperative games. There was never a competition. It was like, how, how long could you keep the ball in the air in a circle? Um, very cooperative in both of their natures, non-competitive. Um, and that's kind of the history of this, this foot game in, in the Asian continent. Um, the majority of the history that I could find resides in Europe because England is claimed to be the founder of, of soccer, at least modern soccer. So majority of the history lies there. Um, and there's three things I want to highlight. So in the 13th century France, there's a, they're in the Middle Ages, there's this thing called a party of boys playing ball. That was kind of the translation of, of this French word as to this game. And basically neighboring cities. So there'd be a, a, a city and their entire population, or at least their male population, would go hang out in a neighboring city. And they have a ball and they get drunk they drink and they'd play this game with their feet and sticks and the goals would be different objects in town so like the invading town if they kicked the ball and whacked the ball and got it to the church they would get a point if the protecting team the team that was hosting the games would get the ball and like kick it out of town then they would get a point and there'd be different like sets of points along so it'd be like a drinking game with sticks and balls and and fights it would it would it deluged into your entire imagination of what kind of shenanigans would evolve out of this. Um, then we're going to kind of fast forward into um, 15th century Scotland, where kind of the Highland Scottish mentality in 15th century, there's this game where, uh, again, a cooperative version. So I kind of went cooperative, then more like confrontational. Now back to cooperative uh, is a group of young men would basically kick with the bottom of their feet and their, their feet in general, they, they kick a boulder. And they basically like see how big of a boulder they could kick along the Scottish Highlands in rapid succession. They ran along and kicked it, ran along and kicked it, and they'd like run along with it. And the the like the guy assumed the greatest like accomplishments was how big of a boulder you could do this with. So I'm just imagining like seven Scottish Highlands cats running across with a giant boulder and kicking <laughs> it. I mean, it, it sounds fun to me. I don't know. And the last element, which is more kind of uh, again, back on the like confrontational side of it is, uh, I believe, 16th century, uh, 16th or 17th century um, in Florentine, in, in Italy, in Florence, Italy, where it's called Calcio Florentino. And there's a documentary about this. Um, it's a very violent sport. It's kind of a mix um, of MMA, football, rugby, soccer. Um, if you ever, there's a documentary on YouTube that you should, uh, check out about this, this game. It's very violent, very, very brutal sport, but it's basically two goals are at the end of this pit. And there's four different communities from Florence that come together to compete. And the pit is just full chaos. I mean, there's, it's MMA. So there's people, they just kind of run into each other. A selection of people are trying to get the ball in the goal. A selection of people are trying to stop them by any means necessary, kicking, tackling, grabbing, and a whole other section of them are just full on fighting. 
MMA style chokeholds, punching, gouges, like total free for all. It's one of the most brutal sports I've ever seen. But it's kind of an interesting discussion as to like, we got soccer out of this. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> how did we decide on this game? Like, what makes us this? And, and do you think we did okay? <laughs> oh, snaps. Uh, those first two games sound amazing, though. Like, the, I imagine, you know, in being in France, like, it's kind of a game of, like, hide and seek with the ball and, uh, I don't know, in the, in the city. So you kind of like, capture you know, the know flag. The There's elements of capture the flag in there. It's, yeah, it's awesome. That's amazing. And then uh, being in Scotland, like, in the Highlands, just, like, I just imagine beautiful scenery, like, you know, these, like, lovely hills and, and rocks and, and kicking a ball. It's like it's like playing sport and like hiking, it seems like. Yeah, that's good. I like that. It's a mesh. But then the last one, the Italy one, I don't know. That seems a little <laughs> – I think it would make good for good entertainment. Maybe like Conor McGregor would want to take that one up. But um, uh, it seems – yeah, it seems a little brutal. But, yeah, those first two sound, sound great. Uh, did we do a good job coming up with soccer? Uh I say yes, but I still want those other ones too. I want to like, why why limit ourselves? You know, let's 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 keep the old sports in in the same. Let's keep them in. Let's keep playing them. Let's let's you know extend the legacy. It's almost I'm I'm so on board with that. It's almost like I wish we could have this situation right now and put the major sports on hold, but still have time to explore mm-hmm. these other ones. Like let's just this year let's take basketball off and let's try. Yeah. Highland Scottish boulder running, you know? <laughs> or go, or go back see how to LeBron the roots. does. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's put LeBron out there and see how he does. <laughs> or go back to the roots with basketball, right? Just just uh, tack a peach basket up to the side of a barn out in the middle of, of Kansas, right? And start throwing it in. Mm-hmm. You just got to go get the ladder to get the ball out every time it goes in, right? Exactly. <laughs> but I think so. Soccer is an amazing case for me. Like, everywhere you go in the world, I've traveled quite a bit and everywhere you go people play soccer right like it is such Mm. a universal game like you want to talk about a universal language like soccer is the one or football right and the the example that you brought up uh the game in in france the way they developed it in these in these towns where the church or the schoolhouse or whatever would be the goal Uh, but it'd be one town like coming to play the other town it's it's sort of a like social diplomacy in a way it's kind of that 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 sort of that sort of resonated with me this idea of like this is a way for the towns that maybe don't share the same culture they don't share the same way of doing things you got to remember in that time in european history there's it's a lot of city states right if i'm if i'm understanding the 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 period 13th century, yeah, there would still be a lot of like townships and kingdoms and and different sections guarded yeah. off, not by not by countries. For a no, long it's not by countries. So you have a lot of these like city state sort of establishments that are very self contained and and would develop their own way of life that's very different from another way of life. So these are they're going to have pretty distinct cultures, but this sport, this game that you know is is one of the ancestors of our modern game of, of football of, of soccer. Uh, was sort of this like medium for diplomacy between these these uh, these townships. That's super interesting. And I wonder, I wonder, like, because some of these sports had 
right? You, you said there were, there's some of them that were cooperative and some of them that were very competitive. I wonder, and this goes back to the chicken and the egg thing that we've talked about on here before is I wonder if that was, if there were times in history that were more, that lent more to this competitive type environment, that there was something going on that fostered that sort of the thing, or if the sport itself sort of led the way and then the rest of society kind of fell in line behind it, right? Like what, where's the chicken and the egg that I think that'd be super interesting to dive into. That I'm um, for sure. And, and it's super interesting, especially as the game evolves, you see it really get formalized and like regulated in the, in the public school system of England. And you see it transfer not only as like a purpose, like in the, in the Florence, for example, is a very militaristic idea. And for the large portion of history, the majority of sports were to build better athletes. They were majority com- like comprised of militant operations from the original Olympics, which is throwing a spear, who can run the fastest, who can huck the boulder, very kind of militarized operations. Then you see kind of the more cooperative stuff, and it comes into, as it goes into the public schools, it becomes a very class-oriented. Like it took a long time for the lower classes to be – allowed to play it was a very privileged that we are we have enough money that we have this leisure time to play this game for fun and that was kind of a difference and a shift away from like the necessary militaristic preparing for war idea of sports into this leisure time now i'm this upper class leisure man and i have time to play a noble game with my gentlemen in the park and we can formalize this and how it got formalized in the public school system so that this identity back to teamwork, we've come full circle that there was an idea that by instilling this and formalizing it in the public schools, we were teaching kids something. And I wonder what that, you know, what the original idea was for that and how, how has that proliferated that idea that like teamwork, it has that literally been an ethos since, you know, 1865 when we first started having matches in soccer to now that it's just like passed down as yeah soccer teaches you about teamwork and we've all just accepted that and then proliferated it and made it true okay let's i mean we have one of the most interesting guys that we know on this podcast right here and cam i'm I'm curious i want to hear a little bit from you and your background i mean first of all what inspired you to pursue architecture and then how did sport and specifically you know football which you played at cal how did that play into the mix of your whole life oh man um so let's see um so i guess i start yeah i'll start with sports so um i guess i grew up playing yeah baseball and football it's like baseball being my first love um i feel like i've made some of my you know closest friends from, from sports. Um, some friends like maybe didn't even go to school with, but just like, you know, playing together on the same team. There's a real strong foundation and friendship built out of that. Um, uh, I'm kind of driven from the what, question. What did you, you love about baseball? <laughs> um, I love that I can like, that it was something that um, I could like sharpen my tool and get better at. Um, and I could see those results happen like in real time um, from like, all right, I'm struggling catching the ball, but oh yeah, practice. Now I can catch the ball. 
I can make diving catches. Um, I can uh, figure out how to like round the base a little bit faster, maybe get a second base on a, on a short hit. Um, so like there's, there's always some sort of like, uh, kind of like this problem solving that, uh, like how to outsmart the other, other opponent, um, whether it's like stealing a base or like, uh, I don't know, getting in their head with like some like shit talk or, or, uh, yeah, it's like, a, there's always some like kind of this, this puzzle or problem solving aspect that I saw in, in baseball. I guess in sports in general, that like made me love them. Like, all right, I can uh, first, I can like hone my skills. I can work on getting stronger, faster, better. Um, a lot of times, people are going to be better than me in those areas. How can I how can I outsmart them to to win the game? Um, and so there's like, yeah. So I feel like I had a lot of that in in baseball and. And it was a measure, and it was the place thing, that you could like measure progress. I think that's fascinating that you could actually see tangible progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, yeah, how do you throw like a, you know, a great, how you, can you hit a strike consistently? Um, or can you throw a strike consistently? Like, those are things that with practice, yeah, you can do it more and more consistently over time. Um, and, yeah, so I guess, I mean, I feel like I'm realizing this right now as I'm saying out loud, but like, I feel like problem solving has been mm. uh, a good theme in my, in my life in, in, in sports. Um, uh, yeah, in football, like, I feel like I always kind of saw the game, like, kind of technically, like, all right, if, um, I don't know, how you space out in the, in the field, um, just being, like, body awareness and, like, spatial awareness. Um, uh, had a big a big part of it or played a big part like tracking a football as it's thrown in the air um like knowing that they go in shapes of parabola I like I feel like that was something that uh like once i learned that i was like oh like this you know i can i can take a different route and get to that spot because i know where i have to go to catch that ball um or like or to intercept it or to knock it down uh and yeah, but then also like having teammates there. So like, you're not the only one on the field. If you know one person is filling the gap, then like, where is the empty space? What do you have to fill? Um, so I started like kind of a mental game. And my dad always told me that like, sports are like, you know, more mental than, than physical. So I always approach the game with a little bit more, a little bit more mental than, than I thought my opponents were, were approaching the game with. I love that. So I got to ask, like, you talked a lot about spatial relationships and you started talking about shapes and you started talking about like honing your craft and there was something very mathematical, very spatial in the way you just described sport, right? And everybody has such a different interpretation of what they're experiencing when they play sport and that in a way is really interesting knowing that at some point you made a decision to pursue architecture as a craft and as a profession. Was there a specific moment when that happened or did it sort of just fall in line? How did that come about for you? Um, well, I, I kind of knew about architecture because my, my dad is an architect. Um, and so it was like, I was around it. Um, and I knew that it involved uh, like art and science. So like there's these, those are things that I, I, I loved. I loved, um, yeah, I loved like making stuff, being creative, crafty, uh, problem solving. Um, 
and those are also similar in, in science like uh yeah like testing out a hypothesis and, and figuring it out or uh you know it's all kind of like this practice and like you kind of have a result is it is it what you wanted if not then go back and do it again it's like this iterative process and uh i think yeah sports are like that you practice 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 there's like a lot of iterations and uh yeah i don't know if i like chose architecture if architecture chose me but it's kind of felt like the, a good a good procession of like all right these are i like problem solving and architects solve problems by building buildings and building spaces and um they just seem like something i could do and i would enjoy and that there is some sort of like uh again like that mental if you with the mental fortitude or mental approach i can do things i can build good build buildings with and build them well um man what is what is the arts and science of sports because i would argue and uh, i would argue because you you mentioned architecture and i and for a reason as soon as you said that i was like man do do sports have arts and science? And I immediately 100 my knee jerk, but I couldn't prove it. So this is totally unproven fact. I was like 100% sports is arts yeah. and science. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about art first. I think um, uh, there's an art of like martial arts or uh, you know type of art. Um, so it's like a, a, a skill that you hone and like practice and, and shape. There's like um, and in the body is like a something that you can sculpt and like um it's a different type of like mechanism used to to get to get there but i feel like it's all this kind of crafting and attention to detail that you're you're doing to your body or to like uh, a formation formation is all like shapes and like spaces and and then uh when you like run the play it's like those shapes and spaces in motion um and yeah so i feel like as you as you work those things it's like if you added color to, to like a play it'd make like some art that'd be an interesting thing to I do i love think. that uh, i just had to like so make i just had to write my my second section of my thesis which is like a specific application to football it's, it's a term called gpd zone approximate development application in football and my second section was language and the and the playbook and I just went through this. I wish I could have talked to this before I wrote this because I just went through the same conversation in terms of routes and formations and how the way we construct language and how um, for generally like the way you film and it's, it's all very depends on the coach. But there's this long lineage of coaching that has dialects so like the West Coast offense or the numerology offense, like the, the digit system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a way to describe being a play. And that very same token is like, there's art in that. You describe a formation by, you know, all the, the three by one formations where three receivers are on one side and one on the other, they're all T words. So trips, triple tray. Um, and then all the, the out though, the concepts, the out, the route concepts that involve outbreaking routes uh, generally always have O words, Oregon, Oscar, Omaha, you know, and how that becomes a dialogue and a language in of itself. Um, and how the playbook is just one big dictionary. And that's kind of like my thesis in that section in terms of language and playbook, but I love it in terms of art. Like that's a whole nother level of like actually adding the diagram into it and the shapes that are made. Um, yeah. And where was a color to a route. I mean, that's just, I think that a, a young, like eight year old kid that had to understand that was asked, okay, I want you to run an Omaha route, which is an outbreaker. 
and I want you to understand the purpose of the Omaha route. And now I want you to tell me the color of the Omaha route. Now I want you to tell me mm-hmm. what it makes you feel. You know, that would be a whole nother de- like delve into the process of, of teaching sport. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And like, and, and also thinking about like the pace of things, like the speed and like the, you know, something's moving fast. Maybe that's a thin line. Um, something moving slower. It's like a thicker line. Um, maybe if like there's a motion or, or, a general area you're supposed to cover it's like a shaded hatch or something uh but then it's also true on like on the canvas on paper on um like you know you don't want to have you sometimes you want to have a balanced image on your for your painting or sometimes you you want to have that white space and that open space to like draw an eye to that to that figure um yeah so that's that's part of art but then also art in terms of uh and i was thinking about this in the uh in the uh the 13th century France game uh, example you gave in that um, how we dress is like an art form and um, something of like, yeah, I know a lot of, a lot of times it's like you look good, you play good, mm-hmm. or you look good, you feel good, you play good type of mentality. And um, so I would like to go back to those, that 13th century and see like the, the home team versus the visiting team and just like see what their uniforms look like. And that'd be hilarious and, and, and awesome. Dappered up. Like who, who came dappered up and who came ready to rock? Like yeah. that'd be interesting. And and can we do that in today's day and age? Like, you know, once one group is like wearing skinny jeans and like acid washed t-shirts and like <laughs> and another group is wearing like flannels and like hipster clothes, you know. I do wish I, I do <laughs> wish the uniforms yeah how were more um different. They're all very yeah. the same and I'm ready for uniforms that are different. And I'll give you an example. I've always been waiting. I've been waiting for this. It's never going to happen, but I'm waiting for the 49ers. I grew up with a San Francisco 49ers fan. I'm waiting for the 49ers to bring out a Jersey that their pants are jeans and they may not be jeans, but they look mm. like jeans, Levi's jeans from San Francisco. Yeah. Their tops yeah. are flannel, red and black flannel shirts and their their hats have like a little cowboy hat on the top. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's delve into this and really have a conversation through like what what are what is our art? What are we portraying? And I think that could be across the league. Like, why are our uniforms not more different than they are? Why are uniforms so uniform? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's super interesting, right? Like with, with sport that happens everywhere in the world, like part of what you love about it is that it is universal, but part of what makes the world so interesting is that there are so many differences, so many artistic differences in all these different places you go. And, and like the style of fashion and clothes, right? Like if that, blended into it there's more like cultural relevance in the uniform rather than just like the bright colors but everything's all the same cut and all the same feel but there's more cultural relevance in the uniforms that'd be super super cool yeah yeah i've always been thinking this Uh, may take us down the uh, uh not so healthy path but i've always thought that in relation to cheerleaders so, um, and this is a, this is a tangent here, but tier, tier, cheerleaders, I feel like should, should equally be relational to the area that they're from, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and this may get cultural and things may get questionable, but like, like, why have they not personified more of like where they're from? We go to Miami and Miami is a very Latin culture. It's a very, you know, dance oriented culture. Why is it not full salsa dancers? 
and like real salsa dancers and real beautiful, thick Latino women from the Caribbean salsa dancing on the sideline, as opposed to the generic same, same cut, same format as a cheerleader. Um, mm-hmm. And why has that, the, 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 I guess, just like the uniforms, cheerleaders and maybe even fans, you could say, have become equally as uniform as it's become yeah. globalized and more like the same across the board. That's just super interesting, that style. Yeah, I'm with Let's, yeah, I'm all for the, let's do the difference <laughs> and let's let people, let's let, let's let it people shine. I mean, yeah. So <laughs> get rid of the another thing, stuff. another thing along these lines of like art and sport, like there's, when you bring it up and talk about sport in, in terms of being a mix of art and science, like one of the art things that jumps out at me, and we've had this conversation before, is about style, right? The style of play, the style of someone's game. Like Mac makes the argument that, you know, he believes that Dr. J is the best basketball player to ever play basketball because he was the one who personified the most style within his game. And then there's sports like, like snowboarding or like, you know, a lot of the, we would call maybe the alternative sports, but a lot of the outdoor sports, snowboarding, mountain biking, surfing, these sort of things, like that's what you're judged on is style and style. And it's all just this, like this performance art. It's all just this dance with your environment. How well do you move with the environment? How organic does that look? How natural does that look? How cool does that look? And it's all, like that's all it is right it's at, at some point it all is just a dance it's all just a performance art and, and that's yeah. a super interesting aspect to it that i don't know i guess we don't talk about it generally in that way but it very much is that way yeah yeah um yeah like yeah how your body's moved back yeah athletes are dancers Dan- dancers are athletes too it's like we're all using our bodies to like make art and something beautiful about that um i think um oh i'm trying to thought about to say i think that like as we as we go i think we're 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 also working that out as i'm as i'm thinking about this because i've never (laughs) talked about this conversation before so i'm thinking as i'm talking the same process but like we're, we're also pushing that out actively by the way that we coach the you know coach the 40 yard dash this combine identity this very like specific sports oriented training to make the most efficient movement process possible is eliminating that element of artistry and that element of of individuality in in the process um and i wonder where the line is in terms of pushing towards the best self or pushing towards the the what you think is the most efficient movement and i kind of that's kind of a vague statement but like do you run best when you run like yourself and if we taught that to run like you are born and made to run or we taught teach you to run like hussein bolt because he's the fastest person in the world and i think there's arguments on both sides like you're never going to run like hussein so why try to run like him on the flip side like running like yourself you might run all types of wacky ways which which is the, actually the best for that individual athlete? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's like different for each person. Yeah, it's the but the, the individual and like, yeah, how do your how does your body move and yeah, kind of if you can get coaching 
for like your specific body type and movement. I feel like that's the best way. Um, but yeah, like do you be natural and be yourself? Oh, good question. I think, like, I think at some point, I think this, this is maybe a good segue into the scientific part of this discussion. At some point, like our bodies, you know, yeah, we, we have differences between each body. Everybody's individual body is a little bit different. But if you were to compare like the anatomy of one human body to another versus like the anatomy of a human body to like a dog or an insect, right? Those things are like, they're vastly different. So we actually are very similar. And, and so for the most part, we're made up, like we're made up of all the same bones, right? You take any two humans, they're going to have just about the same exact number of bones and the same bones in the same positions and the bones create the structure for all the movement, right? Same thing with muscles, same thing with, you know, all the organs and, and, and all that, like we're sort of all made of the same uh, anatomical components. So I think in a way there is this sort of underlying, um, like foundation of uniformity with what is the most efficient way to to move the human body right and that's what we study in in biomechanics and what we study in exercise physiology is how to create those sort of things but in the nuanced parts of sport the things that cam brought up that was really good at these problem solving things like okay i might not be the fastest guy i might not be the quickest guy or the strongest guy but i can think and i can solve all these problems right in this artistry of it it's like maybe the artistry of it is less of a physical development thing and more of a just vision to the game and more of a approach to to how you do, how you do it if that makes sense. I don't know. Is that, because I think, I think we're, I think you guys, I think we're right. I think that there is this balance of science and art that goes about sport, but I don't think anybody's going to argue that like, you know, this would be an extreme example, but we say, okay, we're going to try to run as fast as possible. Well, the, well, the way I want to run is two feet at the same time and do like a bunny hop forward. It's like, well, body's not really made to do that. Like I don't, care that you think that that's your way of doing it like it's not really gonna gonna move you that quick and that's a very extreme example but the, i think there's a lot of those things when you really study and dive into biomechanics that the body moves in kind of certain ways and the artistic aspects of it are these really subtle very nuanced sort of things in the movement components mm -hmm. yeah right i wonder okay so here and here's I'm going off the deep end here, but can we actually describe? Because I don't I'm I'm getting to the point where I don't think we can describe anything in this world. Can we <laughs> actually describe biomechanically what the body does in sports? Because I think you can describe running straight ahead and the argument that the bunny hop is more successful in the straight ahead competition. But I think in the in the let's use basketball as an example that the actual articulation both mentally and physically to play efficient basketball can we truly articulate that biomechanically and and by say articulate i guess it's truly measure and develop the elements of proficiency in that process can we do that scientifically 
and and maybe we're going to delve down over around where like can we identify a child as a baby like they're going to be a superstar we can't do that because there's a mental aspect to it so i i guess i'm leaning into the physical aspect of it like maybe a kid that double hops his entire life for every sprint and loses the entire time could then be introduced to basketball and you know formulate a really good double jump like dunk or or has jumped the, the the jump stop where they jump into the lane and they land on two and then they can do different things off of that like where's the i know that's an extreme example but where's the middle ground that scientifically speaking we would have lost that athlete early on um i think it's interesting we talked about uh with will in in australia where like at at seven eight nine years old they were diagnosed that the the kind of state came in and they ran them through a series of tests and those tests determined what athletics they would be most apt for and i wonder where the error is in that that like people's vision people's mental constructs of who they are and how they want to play the game overrides that physical maybe deficiency as you would call it i think will is a perfect example of that right because when he when the whatever it was like the national ministry of sport came in and they tested him they said he'd be a great rower well he probably would be a great rower physiologically speaking but his heart and his mind wasn't in it he wanted to play american football right and so his desires took him a different direction but i think that the and to answer your question earlier i'm going to go ahead and pull on my my kinesiology background a bit um to biomechanically describe the entire game of basketball, every movement that comprises a game of basketball is so much data and so many data points that I think it's probably beyond what you'd ever want to try to undertake in like a single lifetime, right? And there's a lot of computer modeling for stuff like that which is how we end up with NCAA sport or how we end up with like uh, EA sports and these, uh, you know, these brands are making computer games. They, they, they take biomechanical models and then basically digitize them. Um, and then you, you get to control these data points um, with your, with your joystick. Right. But so you can like create all of those sorts of things I guess you can create mathematical models of all those different types of movements, but the artistry to answer your question, I think from, from my background, the artistry of putting all of the different movements together to create a basketball game that that's, that isn't necessarily just a robotic mechanical process, right? That involves a lot of intuition, a lot of creativity, a lot of those, those sorts of things that are a very artistic process. But can you develop somebody's ability biomechanically to jump higher? Absolutely, right? Can you, can you develop their lateral quickness in a defensive slide? Can you, can you develop somebody's top-end sprint speed by kind of taking these foundational scientific understandings of what like human locomotion how it works absolutely you can absolutely train those things and they come out to be pretty standard but it's not standard in in the sense that like okay steph curry or 
you'll say LeBron James, like, okay, these are the two best basketball players in the game. Let's emulate them a hundred percent, right? Do exactly what they're doing. And you too will become the best basketball player in the game, right? Your body's different than that. You have to, you can, you can learn and train yourself to be able to jump higher, run faster, become stronger and those sorts of things. But the whole craft of putting your game together, right. Is I think that's the artistry in it. I was fascinated by that because I, I took a very dark turn there. What if sport never comes back and we just take the scientific side and go into video games and we never come out this other side because we don't appreciate the artistry. That's interesting. And you see, I mean, we, we see esports growing like crazy, right? Crazy. Big proliferation of esports. People, I was rooming with a guy when I was up in, when I first went up to the Canadian League, that he would spend two, two and a half, three hours every night watching other people play video games. Oh my gosh. Because he was learning how to like play better, I guess, not playing video games, watching other people play video games to learn how to play better. And he's a young kid who's fresh out of college. And I think it's a generational thing. It blew my mind. I was like, what are we, what, you're spending two hours doing that. <laughs> um, it took me down a huge yeah. rabbit hole. I, I would I would never do that, but to give him some, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I can't spend some time watching some cooking videos <laughs> thinking those are going to help me cook better. And I'm going to spend hours, two hours, like watching, you know, Jacques the Pen make some steak and like, yeah. So I, I kind of feel them on I'm like, solely on board with you because I'm, I'm in a Grand Designs rabbit hole right now. There's a show on Netflix called Grand Designs about making houses. And I'm never going to make uh -huh. houses, but watching these people make these houses is cat. Yeah. It's that, those mental reps. <laughs> uh. It all starts somewhere. So, Cam, you, you've been a part of creating some pretty neat summer camps in the Bay Area um, for kids uh, in, the, in the East Bay communities. Can you tell us a little bit about those camps, uh, what you guys do with them, and what the inspiration was? Uh, yeah, so I guess I started um, uh, six, years, six years ago now. This will be the seventh year. Um, and I guess the inspiration was to help the youth in, in the Bay Area, like have an outlet other than sports um, to know, show the creativity, to build their confidence in like an academic section. Um, and my old teammate, Marshawn Lynch and his cousin, Josh Johnson, have an organization called Family First, uh, the Fam First Foundation. And uh, they approached me and said, hey, like, can we do this uh, football camp every single year? We get hundreds of kids to come out. Uh, we do, we, yeah, go to Oakland Tech and like hundreds of kids come out and play football for a couple of days in the weekend. Um, but we want to do something, uh, start to do something a little bit more academic. And, um, and we want to build like a, a youth center eventually. So it was all about them like giving back to the community and like, uh, I don't know, reaching out to their co connections through sport. Uh, which is, you know, as a teammate, um, they reached out to me and said, hey, you know, how, how can we, I guess the initial idea was like, how do we build this, um, as an architect, how do we build this youth center? 
And so I was hearing their, both their ideas at the same time, kind of different conversations. And I said, uh, how, do, how about we do uh, a youth camp where the kids will design the youth center? And I don't know, they were immediately on board with that. And like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. It solves two problems with one stone. And um, so, yeah, so let's hop into it. So, uh, so I also reached out to another, um, you know, kind of sports connection. connection. Um, actually, you know, it was a, an architecture connection. Uh, my friend Jeremiah Tolbert is like a mentor who's also an architect, but also ran track. So we had this kind of like, you know, athletic vibe and, uh, and interest in architecture. And we began to design the curriculum and, and uh, programming for a youth architecture camp at UC Berkeley. Um, and yeah, so the, the, our first camp, the idea was we want to get kids from the, the, the East Bay area, Oakland, Berkeley, Hayward, um, and bring them to campus, to get them on a college campus to get them familiar with that, that vibe, and then teach them about architecture and design. And uh, yeah, so we would go on like these jogs around Lake Merritt and just like kind of just talk about how we want the camp, how we envision the camp to be. Um, yeah, like what age group, what kind of activities do we want? Um, and yeah, and from there it just kind of grew into this thing that we've been running for uh, yeah six years, and we have about twenty kids each each summer come for a week at UC Berkeley, and we do things um, yeah focused on like on design and design thinking. Uh, they include like hands-on model building, um, usually a, a field trip to a construction site. Um, we'll I don't know, teach them concepts about like biomimicry or the study of nature, uh, study of life, and how those concepts can kind of tie into design. We teach them about like the iteration process, um, which is essentially practice. Uh, how do you practice what you're going to make, and how does your design evolve over time? Um, and and we teach them like how to get up in front and like present their project to to a group of people, and so it's kind of building on the. Uh, the self-confidence and the uh, public speaking aspect that is like uh, is valuable in the real in the you know external world, but like people don't get the chance to learn that often. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how we you know the conception and then the you know, development of it. Um, so each year we kind of we pick a topic that's like relevant to the times. Um, when Black Panther came out, we did a our our camp theme that year was superheroes. And so the kids design their own superhero lair. Um, and yeah, it's just it was amazing to see like their creativity and like their uh, their thought process and like, and, and, and see how proud they got like when they accomplished something. It's it amazing, yeah. Dude, that is so amazing. Like that is such a, a refined example of what Mac and I really try to I don't know, support and talk around is this idea of, of let's, let's teach was rather than just doing things for kids, right. Rather than just giving the kids the fish, let's teach kids how to fish, right. Rather than just building kids a youth center in a place that they can show up at, like let's teach them how to build the youth center, right. That's a transferable skill that 
you know, professionally could sustain them through their whole lives into retirement. Right. Now that is something that is incredibly valuable. Now sport without a doubt plays a role in those camps, but you guys have very deliberately acknowledged that sport is not the end all be all. It's a great part of life, but let's teach you how to go about this process of learning how to make all of these things around us that support what it is that we love. And it's, it's an amazing example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mac, how does that tie in with your, with your thesis work? Do you see any crossover there with this concept of like zone of proximal development or, or developing agency? Um, within what what Kim Marshawn and Joe are doing with those camps, I think what's so transformational about that camp is it's it's connecting to sports beyond. And I think my focus is is delving deeper into the sport. And it's kind of like like those those two pillars that we've kind of been our themes. I think for the last couple of weeks now, in terms of how can sport help participants better live a life, and it's a that sports makes a connection to either um, positive traits like teamwork, discipline, work ethic, et cetera, et cetera, that can transcend beyond to something different um, into architecture, into, you know, your, your, how your identity can extend beyond or how the sport can actually introduce you to yourself. And I think, um, what my my thesis is focus is is more on the identity of self and how through the pure pursuit of sport because I think a lot of kids were this way and I know I was as a as a high school student and in a lot of ways I still am I'm very dedicated to my sport and I'm I'm honing in and I don't think it's a hundred percent healthy but my focus is how can I best become how can I become the best athlete possible and that's a process of figuring out who I am as a person and figuring out who I am as an athlete. And I think what's so transformational about this camp is that it builds a dual identity at a, long, at a young age, that I am an athlete and I'm an architecture. I'm an architect. Um, I'm interested in sports and I'm inter- interested in architecture. Um, that, that needs to be cultivated earlier at a, at a, at a younger age. It kind of delves into the, like the generalist versus the specialist. Are we trying, you know, the Roger Federer model where he played all sports and he built this support network of proficiency and tennis ended up being the Mecca and he's now been one of the best tennis player of all time or the Tiger Woods approach, which is very specific, only golf, only all the time, one pursuit. And we can, we've seen that pinnacle collapse and be rebuilt and collapse and be rebuilt and which one's more healthy. I think there's a, a clear answer but it's it's these two identities and i think we've been toying with these and i think that that continued exploration is is fascinating cam from your experience of running these camps can those identities like max talking about playing multiple sports but from your experience working with kids where they're working with a sport and then something that's totally not a sport in the design of 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 buildings do you see these sort of identities developing that cross over those two very seemingly different things? Uh, yeah, th- yeah, for sure. Like you have, um, no, they all, they all, they both take like 
a certain amount of focus and like dedication um, and practice. Like those are like I don't know, some personality traits that like permeate through both things. Um, I think there's like oftentimes, I don't know, teamwork and just like, how do you, how do you talk to one? How do you communicate with other people? Um, and, and then how do people respond to you, like your communication? Um, and those are very, I think all those are like very easily can transferable from one to the other. Um, and I think also what like Josh and Marshawn's kind of point of this camp was, is, is um, making sure that we applaud things that aren't just sports. Like, yeah, it's easy to applaud the athletes that you see on TV and like that are famous and, and say like, oh yeah, they're amazing and good job. But like, I think it's important to also say, oh, you built a building, like that's amazing. You, you figured out, you solved this problem on paper or you, or you wrote this book or like you uh, did something that's not a sport and still applaud that and congratulate that. I think it's kind of what their, their point was. So yeah, you can be, you can be both. And uh, in my opinion, it's like best if, best if you are both, if you have like a lot of different things you're interested in and like take, take what you learn from one thing and apply it to the other and um and just yeah add things to your toolbox as you go so yeah i'm really uh, so i'm just, really curious and i'm gonna go out on a limb here um you you brought up this concept of biomimicry earlier of biomimicry this idea of of sort of designing around how things exist and form in nature and designing buildings around that mm -hmm. Now, if you were to look at the athletic body or the movement of sports in sort of this artistic, organic, biological type way, have you, do you have any instances where you can say that my experience in sport as an athlete has informed a design on a project? Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. I haven't really, I think, yeah, a lot of times we think about my biomimicry and like, and immediately, immediately we like kind of separate nature from ourselves. And in fact, we are, you know, part of nature. And uh, so I haven't thought about that specifically of like the human body, the human biology, um, how our body processes work and how those can be adapted into, um, into like a, 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 a mechanism that can be scaled to like the the built environment, um, but for sure there's there's a way that it can be. Um, I guess I will say I I do know. So yeah, I guess my answer is I haven't delved down that road yet, but it sounds like a fun project that might take on. Um, but you can, but I definitely use uh, like body awareness to like size up to get the the feel of a space and like if something is the building is like a hundred feet long my brain immediately is like oh it's like 33 yards and i'm like all right that's like a you know i can kind of in my head imagine like how long it takes me to run 33 yards and then get a build a picture of like oh that's that's the kind of space it is um or like uh yeah so there's there's a certain like map i've built in my head through playing sports that's I guess mostly spatial that I'm like um, I know my arm, my arms are exactly like six feet wide I know that uh my steps are approximately like two feet nine inches it's like 
Approximately um, two feet nine inches. That's like that's like I'm approximately six three and five eighths, approximately, depending on the. Uh, <laughs> I love uh, that. I love that. Yeah, there's like, there's definitely things like that I know in sport that translate to to my like day to day job that um that aren't like intentional, but like I don't know if I put it if I put some thought to it, it's like yeah my my body in this space will react this way. Um, and like, yeah, and in terms of volume too, like how much space, you know, you need to heat a room, if there's bodies in it, how much heat are they giving off? There's like, um, yeah, there's all sorts of these like, yeah. And, and how do you like move through, like go up and down stairs? Like, so I guess a stair is a good example of like the human body, um, I don't know, can like step forward and up only a certain distance. So what's like an appropriate height and depth of a stair tread to like make it suitable for an older person who can't step that high or for someone who has shorter legs. So like maybe you want a shorter rise and a longer tread um, to like accommodate that body type. This is where this is where my children are gonna hate me, my future children, which I've yet to have. So not only do I plan on massive stairs that they need to do plyo jumps to get up, to to bed, <laughs> but that they're going to have a, uh, a stationary bike in the living room that if they want to watch television, they're going to have to get on the bike and power that said television right, yeah. in the process. But well, you just gave me a great vision. I got plyo boxes as my staircases and they're doing jumps up those plyo boxes and they're going to progressively, <laughs> you're going to be my designer now, Cam. They're going to, as they it. age out, they're going to need to be getting a little bit bigger, you know, like start with that 12 inch pile box and then we're 24. And then hopefully we got the Scott, Ju Scott shotgun, the 36 inch vert pile box as we go up, you know what I'm saying? As we... Oh, you want to go to bed? You better climb this chip. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do a muscle up because that thing's eight feet in the air. <laughs> I think that's interesting, uh, that's interesting in the, the difference of, designing for accommodating like movement deficiencies is the opposite of what we do as sport right like okay you can't it's harder for you to pick your leg up higher so we'll make a shorter step right we design around those sort of things and in the athletic world it's you can't step up this high right now let's train you to be able to step higher let's give you a bigger step right uh -huh. and i think that that is something that I am so grateful for with my with my history as an athlete is this just embracing the challenge. Oh, I can't do this right now. Well, I know that if I work at it, I'm going to eventually be able to get this, right? Like I've never looked at a step and said, this step's too high for me. I don't want this step like this, right? <laughs> uh, uh, that's, uh, you guys got me uh, thinking now. Some interesting things like, yeah, can architecture – build those habits and like um you know to make people taller by like making steps longer like um or can they ruin your back by like making chairs that you sit in instead of like a desk you stand at like how, how does how can architecture affect your these physical physiological changes what would, what would like a workout house be like every day everything you do is incrementally higher or longer you know what i'm saying like yeah. Every single day, like your the stairs get like a little bit higher, and you don't really notice it. 
but every single day like the coffee is a little bit higher on the shelf you gotta read you know what i'm saying like what would that like yeah. movable house like look like Ooh. and how would it it's impossible but i think it's a very Ooh, interesting like, theoretical uh, no i'm already going there it's like imagine um you have an escalator instead of a, a staircase and each day maybe monday it's like super fast and in order to get up the stairs you got to go fast and then each day maybe it slows down like sunday you have a day of rest it's like stand still oh, i already like, want that in my house thing. i'm always tempted to go up the wrong <laughs> side of the escalator i'm always tempted i want to do it every time and i and i look at them like oh that's not proper social behavior and then i take the down one but yeah, or like magnetics on the door to like make the door a little yeah, bit heavier. I like that. I'm gonna pull the door yeah, open, is, little string. This is what I yeah. love about Cam is like you present Cam <laughs> with a problem and he's immediately trying to solve it, right? And he's like, That's yeah, I'm not possible because you right? <laughs> sounds great. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so uh -huh. Cam recently, and this is more more kind of life stuff. Recently you uh you took a little break from your career in designing and uh and did some other things. So first of all what inspired that break and what other things did you get involved with oh man uh uh so i took the break because um sitting at a desk just like it's, it's tough it's tough like i think growing up as an athlete you're like used to moving around and like you know talking to people and like and you kind of do that in architecture but a lot of it is like sitting at a desk and like drawn like on the computer or like emailing back and forth or phone calls to a consultant or a client and uh yeah and depending on and what type of building you're doing it's like you know is the client worthy of your time like that and uh so yeah i guess i reached a point where i felt like i wasn't getting out of it uh like wasn't doing work that like i was super enjoying and that I wanted to like step out and move my body a little bit more and like do some some different stuff and uh, and just feel oh, a little bit more free from as opposed to being tied down to the desk. Uh, so so I did a ton of stuff I like, <laughs> and a lot of it's pretty random. And and kind of my goal for it was just like get out there and like do like as many different weird things as you can and like have fun doing it. Um, and so yeah started off i became an oyster shucker <laughs> so i like learned how to like shuck oysters so I, like you know, walk around at parties shuck oy shucking oysters and um kind of talking to people about like the health benefits of oysters which are like amazing they're a super food <laughs> and they do great things for the environment um then i did some background acting uh this is like something random to do um so you can find me in like an episode of Law and Order. I'm in the back of a courtroom taking pictures. <laughs> um, I, I became a camp counselor and went took kids on um, these uh, backpacking trips and some canoe trips, uh, which was amazing. Uh, I got to spend some time outdoors doing that in Vermont. Um, uh, what else did I do? Oh, those are the, those are the main things that like filled my my break from from the architecture world. So this is the thing uh, that I love about Cam, right? Like Cam is a hundred percent in charge and taking ownership of his own life, right? He's like, I've done doing architecture for a little bit. I want to do some random things, see what sort of random things I can get involved with, 
move a little bit. And then you have this, how long has this been going on? You, you were an oyster shucker, a camp counselor, mm -hmm. a background actor. Over the course of how long was that? Um, over like maybe seven months, <laughs> seven, eight months, something like that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was, uh, I highly recommend it. Like, yeah, <laughs> go do some random shit, get out there. Yeah, hike. I did a lot of hiking that time. Was, yeah. Amazing. What do you think are the biggest benefits for you of taking a break from what you're doing like mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Um, I think there's a big mental um, big, some mental fortitude that happens during that time of just like hitting the reset button and like uh, knowing that there's more uh, there's more to discover out there. Um, I think and in, in doing so you like you see different things so um, which can spark different inspirations. So like I'd never been to Vermont until I was a counselor out there and like hiking the highest mountain in Vermont and like seeing uh, I don't know, the different plants out there that I haven't seen before or um, or just different trails and like um, or learning uh, how different ecosystems work. Um, just give, give yourself the opportunity to like learn something different and like expand my brain in that way. Um, I've got to be on the set of some like movies and TV shows, which is like something I've never done before. And I don't know, it's just, I, I kind of see it as all things that I can just add to my toolbox and like, you, know, you have a little bit of knowledge of that. Um, and I, who knows when I'll use it, but like, like have some sort of base for a conversation or for designing uh, a TV set or a, a studio or something now, like I kind of have a place to start with that now. Um, so yeah, so I'll just kind of like, just wanted to, to get, grab it, I just want to gather different tools to put in my toolbox and, and hit the reset button, take a break from sitting in that chair. So there's some, definitely some health benefits to it. Um, oh, fresh air, it's a huge thing. <laughs> yeah. Just, um, yeah. I remember there was a, there was a point. So I, I was playing ball for a while. Um, played, you know, Mac and I played with your brother down in San Jose with the Sabercats. And when I was 25, like I, I decided to to walk away from the game, and I was like, well, sports is a thing I know. I studied kinesiology in school, so what I'm going to go do is work in uh, in the sports world somewhere, and I'm going to go. Uh, so I went, and I, I actually got a job managing a sports performance facility, um, and it was kind of this this fusion of like my ambition for for business and enterprise with like the, the knowledge I had and the background I had for from kinesiology. And at some point, like it just drove me crazy going to the same building every day and it drove me absolutely nuts. And my summer job when I was in college was guiding whitewater rafting trips. And so when I just couldn't take enough of going to the same gym every day, uh, there were a whole bunch of other things about like the whole culture of youth sports and the whole professionalization of, you know, eight year olds in youth sports that I was kind of bothered mm -hmm. with in my soul, uh, probably a different topic for a different time. But when I got done with that, I was like, I went and I wanted to do basically the same thing. So I got in touch with the old river company that I used to work for and said, Hey, do you have any trips available left for the, the rest of the summer that I can go get involved with? I said, yeah, we got a few. We actually need a couple of guides. And that led to a month of guiding river trips, which led to another connection, which uh, down in Patagonia, down in South America, 
which at that time I didn't have a job or anything else going on. So I was like, well, I might as well go to South America, which led to this whole like whirlwind of traveling the world for like three, four years, playing sports, guiding river trips, playing sports, guiding river trips, like exploring, learning new languages, yada, yada, yada. And there was this, this element of that amount of time that I don't think I would have the same sort of view on like how much in control of your own life you are and, and your own processes and how not controlled by other people you are. Like you always have to be able to feed yourself and keep yourself sheltered, right? You can't just leave yourself out in the storm with no food or water, right? Like you have to have a plan for taking care of your basic necessities without a doubt. But I think we get so wrapped up in these constructs and these conventions of what we have to do and what we should do that we sort of lose ourselves, I guess, or, or something. Did you feel there was a sense of like regaining yourself in your own kind of identity and desires when you decide to take a break from, from architecture? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like I think anybody in the like wrong situation where you feel like you're kind of selling your soul or, or I feel like I definitely felt a little bit of that, like going to something that I was not happy with and doing kind of the same cookie cutter stuff over and over again. Um, yeah, it's a little soul sucking. It's like, yeah, it's take, taking the creativity out of you sometimes. Um, and yeah, it definitely gave me like a sense that I had like agency over my life and like, and I can, you know, do, do these things and like still be okay. And like, I was able to come back and get a, get another job. Like, but I think having had those experiences and like, uh, reground with myself in a, in a way that like filled my soul, I was able to like, I don't know, be happy with that and like go back into uh, come back to the architecture world like with a full self and like a full appreciation for um doing stuff that i like and like not forgetting who who i am in that sense yeah i want to ask something like a lot of people have this fear about leaving their jobs and having this gap in their resume um, and being able to find a job coming off of that break and find a job in your trade again with this gap did you experience that at all was it a challenge to did you kind of pick up where you left off career-wise or, or or was that gap of time like something that was questioned by people that you were looking to potentially be employed by um i think it might have actually enhanced it um maybe had i been out of out of the architecture world a little bit longer it wouldn't have um so had i taken off like a year from architecture maybe it would been a little bit tougher to get back in but uh in doing so, kind of, it kind of, I kind of, you know, I had a plan when I was doing this. Like, I'm not, uh, I'm leaving on my own terms, like going out and like doing stuff that I want to do, making time for it. Um, and I think the people that I interviewed with saw that as like, oh, he, you know, he takes the initiative and he, you know, can go do, go out and do things. And it's like, you know, he's more than just an architecture guy. He can do other stuff. And, um, but he's like competent and confident enough to like leave a job because he can, because he wants to like fulfill that part of his life. And 
and see that journey through. Um, and yeah, I was gonna say, um, yeah, I kind of feel like, um, like even with, with sports, sports in college, I like never put all my eggs in that basket. You know, I always like made sure I was staying, staying rounded outside of sports with like, um, I don't know, by doing the architecture stuff, by, um, I don't know, like still, still staying connected to the nature and doing hikes and, uh, and still doing art and stuff. And so I, I like, uh, I think having, yeah, I think having, you know, more than one focus can like help round out, round yourself out in more than, in, in a lot of different spaces. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. It goes back to our element, like how, how Scott always asks, like, what would you, what what would your advice be to a young athlete growing up? And that, that's a great, that's a great element. I want to put you back on the spot, but the, the element of having more than one identity to lean on is so valuable. Right. If you could tell that to a young athlete right now, I think it would be transformative for their life in and beyond sports. Yeah. Yeah. I would, t- I would tell someone like, don't just, yeah, don't just play football like also take ballet lessons you know like also learn how to cook like also and those things may seem like tangential but they you know they can there's like lessons and and lessons you can learn from each thing and bring them back to to your sport if that's your super passion i I think so many people are like they're so afraid of this time away from training or this time away from from being focused right and having this like laser focus on their goals and, and whatnot and there's just so much evidence that like not only just the emotional side of taking a break or the, the mental stimulation side of taking a break from things, but also just the physical side of it, like just to give your, I mean, this would be kind of the opposite of, of sitting at a desk, but if you're just playing your sport all the time, you're around, like your body is going to start to break down, right? Like burnout in sport is a real thing. Like injuries, repetitive stress injuries are a real thing. And taking a little time to develop other aspects of yourself, of your life, right, are super, super important. And they don't necessarily come at the detriment of your success as an athlete. And I think that, that, I mean, you're a great example of that. But, I mean, even Mac, like taking time in the offseason to, to work on his master's thesis while he's a professional athlete, right? He is at the very top of his game and developing a different side of himself. I think it's a great example for, you know, coaches and young athletes and parents that, you know, if you become too over-consumed by this thing, like you, the end's going to be sooner than you probably want it to be. Right. And you're going to miss some things along the way. And I, I am victim. I appreciate the compliment, Scott, but I'm also victim of the the single mindedness too. I, I, in terms of that rest, like I, I should appreciate my body more and give myself more diversity. And I think I'm exploring that now. Um, you know, quarantine's kind of helping me in that way, exploring some, some dance workouts and some other ways of moving that, really inform my body that I need it on the football field and it's stuff I don't explore because I get in that rhythm of like I'm going to hit weights three days a week I'm going to go to the park and I do sprints two days a week you know you kind of get in that mold and your body's like okay I'm going to do this to the least you know ability to survive but this is not necessarily healthy for you in the long term and I 
I do edge on the side of overwork. And I think I'm still learning that lesson as an athlete to this day. So I do appreciate the compliment and the masters was a, was, it does definitely inspire me. It makes me think about the game in a more holistic way and it does help, but I'm also a victim of the other side too. I'm still learning that lesson. Yeah. Well, I can see, I mean, the difference between you now and you at 23, 24 years old is, is night and day. I mean, in terms of like, I mean, you're, you still, without a doubt, put a ton of time into your craft. You still work your butt off today in today's game. But I think the level of obsession and just groundedness and acceptance of, of the time it takes and the process that it takes and then the, the value of, you know, doing some other things, you know, I, I, I think there's, from knowing you through this, through that time, I think there's a huge difference in your demeanor and everything um, kind of as you've made that shift. Thank you. I'm still, I'm still looking for that perfect recipe, like to Cam. Hey Cam, one, one last thing I want to chat, chat about while we got you on here. Um, and it's a little bit about a documentary that you recently narr- narrated. Uh, tell us about that film and then how you were involved in that process. Yeah. Uh, so the film, uh, Film was a documentary film about uh, my grandfather and his team, uh, the 1951 USF Dons. And yeah, as Mac mentioned earlier, uh, it was a team where they went undefeated. Um, they had, yeah, I think three people, they went to the Hall of Fame. Um, they had, I think, nine people make it to the NFL. And this is a, in a team of about like, I think like 19 people. So like percentage wise, almost half the team going to the NFL, which, uh, yeah, so they had squad. Um, and uh, so the team, you know, undefeated, untied, and uh, they were uninvited to any bowl games uh, because they had two black players on their team. My grandfather, uh, Burl Toller Sr., and Ali Matson, uh, who played running back. And as a team, they had, you know, they were able to decide whether or not they would go to this bowl game. Uh, they finally got an invitation, but the invitation came with the caveat that they had to leave the two black players behind. So they had an opportunity to go uh, as an all-white team without their their teammates or to not be invited to the bowl game. And so they, uh, 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 the story goes that there was no discussion at all. They just, they said they're not going, like, they didn't have to think about it. And um, so the team refused the offer and, um, and, you know, instead like stood on the side of, of, uh, of righteousness and, and camaraderie and brotherhood and said, you know, if we're not, we can't go with our brothers and our whole team, then uh, we're not going to go at all. And so, yeah, they took a stance against uh, racism in that, in that uh, season. And in doing so, they actually lost like, you know, in going to a bowl game, you get a lot of funding to your school. Uh, so by not going to the bowl game, they like lost money and the football, the football at USF eventually died out. Um, I think like a year or two years after that. Um, but yeah, this, this documentary kind of just talks about that team, that decision, that injustice, and yeah, had the opportunity to narrate it and, um, um, and just tell that story in, in, in depth and it was a lot of fun and and I don't know, like uh 
heartbreaking in a sense, um, eye-opening, like uh, makes me feel like thankful for for them going through that and like setting that precedent. Like you can't have this, um, uh, of course, this sort of separation, segregation, um, and yeah, uh, and yeah. Eventually, my grandfather went on to become the first African American official in the NFL or in any major sport in the U.S. And um, yeah, I always like to say, or I, I like to think that because you know he had this opportunity to break the color barrier as an official, that um, you know it also helped break barriers in other aspects of society. Um, and in ways, and so you can. You know, if we can trust a black man to officiate a football game, maybe we can trust him to be like a mayor of a city, and maybe we can trust him to be president of the United States. Um, and I feel like we finally got to see that happen in 2008. So it's like, uh, I don't know, it's emboldening to see that kind of um, that struggle become, I don't know, realized in, in something that's not just about football or just about sport, but like, uh, you know having a black person as a president of the United States is like, was know, something huge. And I thought, like to think my grandfather had a part in play, uh, played a part in, in that outcome. 100%. Do you, um, do you know where that this document can be found or what outlet or how it's available or the name of it? Uh, yeah, the film is called Uninvited. Uh, it was produced by Andrew Elric. Uh, I believe it was on this college sports network. That's awesome. That's a cool thing to be a part of. I mean, uh, and that, that to me is one of the, the biggest truths and the, the most interesting things and most exciting things about sport um, that, you know, we will definitely continue to circle back in these conversations, but how instances like that just move us forward as a society. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Cam, can't thank you enough for having you on, man. Um, it's it's always a good, good time when we can sit down and chat and love everything that you had to share. Um, and I think, that you are a great example uh, and everyone out there listening it's it's a great example to really wrap your head around this idea of, of being involved with sports but wrapping yourself into identities that um are separate from sport as well um, so for the athlete purpose beyond sport podcast we'll see you next time yeah thank you guys for having me it's been a pleasure <laughs>